Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of CanadaLand Shortcuts is brought to you by Paytm, the best way to pay all of your bills at once. Paytm is so sure that you're going to think so. They're giving you $10. Pay a $200 bill, you'll get $10 back when you download Paytm Canada and use the promo code CanadaLand. Zoe Whittall, writer of the novel The Best Kind of People, comedy writer for Baroness Von Sketch, poet. Hello. Hi. Zoe, we are going to discuss today just how racist is too racist for Andrew Scheer. <laughs> we are going to discuss whether or not dangling one's penis at one's employee can be just part of the artistic process. And we are going to discuss the sudden shocking national realization that women have been writing about for years that English professors sometimes act like dirt bags. <laughs> A guy wrote about it finally, so now it's news. Welcome to Shortcuts. Hey, thanks for having me. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Joran McMillan, Bruno Belanger-Druin, Kelly Sawatsky, Jordan Pavlik, Devin Black, Jesse Pruden, Kristen Day, and Alex Sawatsky. I'm Alex. I'm a PhD student at the University of Guelph. Canada Land gives a platform to some really intelligent and insightful people that I wouldn't necessarily be introduced to otherwise. And more often than not, I come out on the other side of episodes questioning my assumptions and thinking more critically. And more importantly, I get to hear Jesse being challenged by these people as well. And this episode is brought to us by our newest sponsor, Paytm. Zoe, 
you look like somebody who's looking for, I don't know if you look like somebody who's looking for a new payment solution. If you are looking for a new payment solution, we met with these people at Paytm and it's it's fascinating. They have millions, like this is the way that people move money around in India. There's a philosophy to this app, which is essentially that there's no reason why it should cost anybody money to move money around. Hmm. Anybody who wants to take a nibble out of you for just paying a bill is just making an unnecessary profit off of something that, that really should be free. So Paytm is good for a lot of stuff, but the best thing it's for is paying all of your bills in one place. And they're so confident that you're going to realize that and they just want you to use it, so you'll see that. So they're just giving you 10 bucks. If you download Paytm to your mobile device from the Apple App Store or from Google Play and you pay a $200 bill, you will get $10 back. Download Paytm, promo code CanadaLand. Zoe, the hashtag Canlit Accountable is suddenly trending. It's like the top news story today in, in Montreal. Mm-hmm. This is your world, Canadian literature, and I'm wondering if you can give us a bit of a sense of what this whole controversy that has now become a news story that Concordia University has said they're taking very seriously. Uh, it started with a bunch of essays. Can you just give us a quick primer on Canlit Accountable? Sure. So it became a, a news story because a writer named Mike Spry wrote a blog about his participation and sort of witness to a variety of problematic and abusive behavior at Concordia while he was a student and uh, a writer in that community. You know, he has an, an entire story of having been somewhat complicit as a witness or a, you know, a buddy to the people accused. And so his story of, of figuring out what was going on and then and looking at his own behavior is an interesting one. I guess his blog made a big splash because of the Me Too conversations that are happening. And I think also because there have been a lot of people talking about UBC Accountable. That's the letter in support of Stephen Galloway, who was the head of the UBC creative writing department, who was fired. And he's in arbitration this week. There have been a lot of discussions over the last five years and a lot of articles written by women about this very same situation. And so I think given that it was written by a man and also that it was happening post Me Too. And also, I think, you know, Heather O'Neill stepped up and she's a really big name. She's, you know, one of the biggest names in Canlet. And um, she's been outspoken about it before, but in this, it seems to it seemed to have been like a bit of a perfect storm in terms of news coverage. And I think now we're we're really talking about it in a serious way. And it was interesting uh, that it became such a news story. I'm actually surprised and and heartened by that. That you know that it was the lead story on CBC in Montreal today. It is worth saying, like you say, because he's a man, seems to be part of it. Like his essay is almost like in response to a, what, five-year-old piece by Emma Healy? You know, I was a reporter at Quill Inquirer when that piece came out. It was talked a lot about within Canlet circles. Women were talking about it a lot. But it was somewhat like uh, what happened at the Globes. You know, all the women were talking about it and the men sort of quietly waited for it to pass. No men talked about um, the Me Too movement on the mic or, you know, it, it was mostly the women who did the talking. And I think that that sort of played out in a similar way when Emma Healy's piece was up on the hairpin and Stacey May Fowles wrote a piece for the Globe and there was a lot of discussion. But it was, you know, kind of within... Uh, It was sort of women talking to women for the most part. We're kind of talking about something that is almost like a cliche of creative writing departments. It's it's fodder for like everything from like Michael Chabon's Wonder Boys to like old Philip Roth stuff of like, you know, the the middle age crisis, male prof, fading literary uh, career and the like manic pixie poetry girl Mm -hmm. who like helps him get his groove back and doesn't care about his wrinkly, you know, like that's 
that's old stuff. Totally and, old stuff. And and when I was in an English department in Montreal, at the same time that a lot of the stuff that people are talking about at Concordia, it was like just like, oh yeah, this is what I was told by a lot of not like it's almost like if you are a person who goes into an English department, you've read that story so many times. Yeah, yeah. By the time you show up there, you're like, Oh, surprise, surprise, these guys perv on their students. And one of them got married to their student. When, oh, yeah. You know, like that happens too. Galloway's married to the second or third student that, you know. Yeah. Like, so like what is this thing that they need to be held accountable for? What do you think? For me, there are two separate issues in a way. And I think they get conflated. So there's the issue of socializing and drinking with your profs and a culture of networking and the fact that MFA departments are often like 12 or 15 young writers. And certainly when I did my MFA at Guelph, there was a lot of networking and socializing, and that's the way you build your career. And so I think that often what happens now, and I was thinking about some conversations that were happening on Twitter today about like prevent, you know, drawing a hard line between profs and students and never drinking and never socializing in that way, which I don't think necessarily is, that's like a rather blunt instrument to to try to solve a problem that isn't really about the socializing or the networking. It's about people who don't have professional boundaries and it's about a culture that allows a, a type of misogyny and sexism to thrive unchecked. And so I think it's about talking about those kinds of the necessity of those kinds of boundaries. And I think like I went to Concordia and creative writing in 1994, I'm dating myself. And what's happening, you know, I've been touring a book about rape culture for a year and a half. And, you know, at 42, I feel like I have a lot of generational differences between myself and the young women who are undergrads now and the way What's interesting is the way that they just don't accept things that I think are completely normal. Uh -huh. Like, and like and it's so it's been interesting. Well, I think I started out touring the book being like, why can't students drink with teachers? And it's part of the writing yeah. world. And you know, and even in terms of teacher-student affairs, I didn't feel like I had as hard a line about it as some of the younger students that I was talking to. And I really feel like. I changed my tune a little bit in terms of really looking at those power imbalances and like, why do I suddenly feel like I need to protect this culture? Yeah. You know, which is interesting to me. It's interesting to be like kind of called out on things that I think are just normal. That's interesting because there's yeah. almost a sense of possessiveness of like, this is this is the society of, right. of, of writers, of artists, literary like, festivals yeah. and everybody goes out and fraternizes. And it's mm -hmm. like, that's part of the fun when you, right. the fact that your TA or your prof was having a drink with you was oh, sort it's of such like, an honor. Yeah, yeah. It's been an interesting process to like examine my own thoughts about it and, and to, to change them to mm -hmm. a certain extent. You know, we're not talking about a professor who, in 10 or 15 years, develops an intense mutual consensual attraction with someone. And it's, you know, I don't think that there should be, you know, blunt rules about that sort of thing. We're talking about professors who, and certainly the one at the center at Concordia, is the, you know, routinely dating 19-year-olds. You know, it's that's a cliche, but it's also, like, super gross and, like, needs to be yeah. um, discussed in a, in a, in a way that help holds him accountable our own producer kevin sexton tweeted that he was in concordia creative writing 2006 2009 to say that teachers preying on students was an open secret would imply it was a secret it wasn't the students knew the teachers knew the school knew that was corroborated by our friend at canada and mark burry he says that he was teaching at concordia j school in 2009 same thing he said he brought up similar issues from another department to concordia's uh, senior levels they told him to get a hike and they said these are consenting adults right Part of me is uneasy with, you know, I can see this from the perspective of like, it's one thing for somebody five or 10 years later to say, 
I was not aware, as I should have been, of the power imbalance at the time that I was just 19. I thought I could handle this, right. and, 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 and it didn't end well in a way. You know, it, it did a lot of damage to me. If you were to speak to that same person at the time and say, sorry, you can't date your professor, it would feel like a puritanical assault on their freedom right, to, right. you know what I mean? Like, where does it become that? Well, exactly. And there's also this cliche in the literary world about Montreal being this world where you can live cheaply and party all the time. And there are li- in Toronto is this uptight literary didn't world it feel of like ambitious. That? It's absolutely true. I feel like in part I moved here so I could be ambitious and focus on my yeah. career. And in Montreal, you can go out five nights a week and and still write your poetry. And, no parental and, oversight and no administrative oversight. Like, yeah. you, like you never even knew who were the people running these universities. They weren't really a part of it. You know? No, exactly. But I do think that it, what, you know, um, uh, can I name the, the person? Or is that a... You know what? It takes about three minutes of Googling to figure out that there is a figure at Concordia who a lot of this conversation is about. Well, so I wrote a poem about uh, gender imbalance in book reviewing. And then the person at the center of the controversy wrote a Huffington Post blog about a very flattering piece about the poem. He kind of was like, you know, a very feminist, allied position on sexism in literature, and yet he's the guy at the center of this controversy who, and it's the typical kind of lefty feminist who's actually a predator kind of situation. And that's when somebody reading it decided to write a blog in response. And so that's calling him out, calling him out, being like, so ironic. Yes. It's so ironic to see my rapist write this piece about, um, about, you know, sexism in the literary world. And and so, well, if that happened publicly, you can say so uh, if if that person called them, you know, if if that, right. They didn't name his, it was obvious who he was. And and she was later threatened with libel. So she can't speak about him. and, And everybody who's ever called him out on Twitter has had to remove their tweets because he's, you know, he goes after them. He goes after them. So, and and this is someone I know. He published my second poetry book. And so anyway, there's this like long history and a ton of women who, when you speak in in private groups, will often talk about him in particular. And so I think it's like high time for there to be some some actual discussion at you know the administrative level about why his behavior goes unchecked and is is only talked about in these kind of informal settings at the same time we kind of want to avoid the calamity that ensued at UBC in yeah. terms of um, you know Chelsea Rooney tweeted yesterday about advising everyone not to involve the administration and not to go through not to go through a formal process yeah. At Concordia because it went so badly for everyone involved there. Which Concordia seems to be inviting people to do from, yeah. from really decades of, of looking the other mm-hmm. way at this kind of stuff. They, they, they changed their tune in light of this Mike Spry uh, article, this blog, and saying, we take this really seriously. We're looking into it. And then Chelsea Rooney, who is one of uh, Stephen Galloway's accusers, saying, you should think twice before participating in some internal university, supposedly private process, because the stuff you say to the university might get leaked and used in a uh, really stilted media report um you, you lose control completely what a fucking mess yeah i mean when you get into the i didn't realize there actually were uh, was a at least one rape allegation against that professor um that is a crime and we have you know i would hope the vast majority of this is not at the level of crime or even outright sexual harassment what mike spry and and emma healy both kind of described which literature actually does a good job and essays do a good job of just like cultures of power and cultures mm-hmm. of prestige and you know Mike Spry writes Canlit is a monster it's a funny thing because we almost talk about Canlit as like this like innocuous pat- yeah it's there. you know our scribes right. you know <laughs> our, our little pets yeah and in fact it's like this vicious world of backstabbing and power peddling and influence and this is not 
a lot of money that people are fighting over. It's, no. it, it's not a lot of readers that people are fighting over. It's not a lot of prestige, but it's almost like the smaller the world gets and the lower the stakes get, the worse the behavior is. It's like poets. Poets are the worst with the infighting. Oh, the worst? You know? Oh, my God. Wow. The vitriol, when, when Jason Gurriel writes something on the walrus site about poetry, it's just... It's like the world falls. It's true. But I think that it's also in that same discussion, while like the Montreal world or the UBC world might be small, the the power at the top of Canlet is really big. That's why I think the letter, the UBC Accountable letter was so, so problematic because it really represented the, the most powerful at the top of that. And they roll deep. They roll as a pack. Uh, you know, Margaret Atwood and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, all really were like with Joseph Boyden. Um, Sheila Hetty, who later took her name off, as others did, but there was really a sense of like, you have gone against uh, the pack here and it was, you know, retribution was swift. You know, I have, have had a glimpse of that world this year after being on the Giller list and doing a number of those big kind of fundraiser dinners and all. It really is a small world with a lot of money and that keeps Canlit afloat. And it's, it's uh, creepy. Lynn Bayek's controversial run as a conservative senator came to an end this week. This has to do with a series of letters that Lynn Bayak posted on her website that uh, reinforce her position on residential schools. Now, Shear's head of communications is on the defensive, tweeting they only learned about the latest issue from Global News two days ago. Zoe, a tweet took down a senator, sort of. Um, the process was a bit more complicated than that, but Robert Jago's tweets about Senator Lynn Bayak's website and the stuff she was publishing on her website led to news reports and led to Andrew Scheer turfing Lynn Bayak from his conservative caucus. I didn't know that senators had their own personal web pages where they could like <laughs> live journal their right. senatorial amusings. But if you believe Global News, it was in response to Global News uh, running an article and bringing this to the Scheer people and saying, you have a conservative senator who is running letters of support for her position on residential schools, which seem... Uh, well, they're just racist. Robert Jago's story in The Walrus published the same day as that global story. So you might think that it's sort of like a toss-up of who can take credit. But the fact of the matter is this is Robert Jago's story. And Robert Jago began tweeting about it well before either of those publications broke this news on December 28th. The guy is he's got a full-time job unrelated from journalism. He, he's doing this again and again, finding these issues, bringing them to light, and just using publicly available material to hold these turds under the nose of Canada's establishment and say, are you going to put up with this? Among these, uh, I don't know, 200 letters that Bayak put on her website include emails arguing, hey, if you stuck a bunch of Amish farmers on an, a native reserve, within a year, they'd have homes, a church, barns, they'd have wells, water treatment plants, they'd have a furniture business. But if you put the, the indigenous people in an Amish community, in a year, they'd have burned down the house and left the fields to rot. Another person that Lynn Bayek saw fit to publish said, hey, the residential schools weren't so bad, thanks to them. When I see an Aboriginal, I can talk to them to some extent. Another person said, indigenous culture is damaging. They're a culture that will sit and wait until the government gives them stuff. Hilariously, one of the people who Lynn Bayek published said, First Nations now have a total upper hand. A total upper hand. <laughs> uh, somebody else said they should be very grateful for residential schools. It goes on and on. And uh, I think that Sheer now he's involved in this um, spat with Lynn Beck, who says that, oh, you never gave me a chance to take down the emails like you claimed you did. I don't really care. I think that it's a firing offense either way. But that is that is what he said he did. 
I, I really couldn't care less. There was a headline on CBC about how actually a residential school survivor uh, said he warned Andrew Shear months ago about those letters. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Garnet and Jaconeb. Yes. Um, member uh, of the Order of Canada, residential school survivor who's suffered some pretty serious uh, sexual assaults, atrocities at residential school. He, he says that he, oh, he didn't say, he produced the email, okay, that he sent to Andrew Shear and the conservative Senate leader Larry Smith on September 15th. So we need to be clear, this is not happening because Andrew Shear had a crisis of conscience. This is happening, Global might be right in saying that it was because it, it wasn't Robert Jago's tweets. Uh, it wasn't the walrus story, though that is what got the ball rolling. It was when a mainstream news organization made this a news story that Shear said, okay, now I'm going to do something about it. Mm-hmm. It's the power of the press, but it's the power of the press as exerted by Robert Jago, who, who started the who whole process. Work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, she's got a posse. There's a lot of people who will support her oh, on this. Yeah. Um, and I think it's good for us to know that too. Interestingly, you know, Global News, and I believe... Uh, the Globe and Mail, when reporting on this, said, you know, Sheer fires back over quote unquote racist right. emails, which is a quote of what Sheer said. And it was pointed out on Twitter wow, Andrew Sheer has no problem just calling them racist emails. Is Andrew Sheer more woke than Global than the News? Globe. <laughs> <Or> the Globe. <laughs> Both. I yeah, both yeah. I, I'm just sort of in awe of Jago's work in doing what this basic thing that we can do with words now and that you don't even need a news organization to do. Uh, which is uh, like to say to to Andrew Shear, this exists. You can't pretend it didn't because I'm telling you that it exists. And I'm telling the world that I told you that it exists. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do about it? But he talks about the, the the Overton window. You know this concept? No. It's it's the window of what is acceptable in terms of opinion. Okay. And and he writes about who gets to define what is within that window. It's not about principles or ideology like, oh, we're now past racism or, you know, the government of Canada has recognized that the residential schools were practicing cultural genocide and therefore that saying they were great falls outside of the Overton window. That doesn't accomplish that. Uh, It's an expression of power. It's what we're seeing now is writers like Robert Jago and Indigenous writers asserting power and saying, we will tell you that that is unacceptable. And every time somebody steps outside of of it, we will point it out and we'll shout as loud as we can. Mm-hmm. It's kind of thrilling to watch the process happen. It is thrilling to watch. And it's interesting. I think there are th- there are ways that that same concept is happening within the queer and trans community in terms of what was acceptable last year versus what's acceptable now and how fast things are shifting in yeah. terms of, of that. That's interesting. It, yeah, that's like this scale where like when I was a kid, I could see Eddie Murphy um, – talking about homosexuals in a way that is now outside of that window. Mm -hmm. Today, we can watch Dave Chappelle talking about trans people in a way that trans people are saying, let's push that out of the fucking window. Anyhow, I believe that this is not over. I'm interested in this cleft in in conservative Canadians. Is she out in the wilderness by herself? Or will people follow her and take this racist stand against now, I guess, the acceptable mainstream conservative party? I'm interested now that we've got people on the hunt for these transgressions that were acceptable, like what was on Lynn Bagg's website, what what more people are going to find. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems... And just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. 
but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Okay, Zoe, I'm going to thank our second sponsor today, Hover. You are a writer with a website, as all writers need to have websites. I'm not going to ask you who you got your domain from. That's your business. That's a private thing. But I will say to anybody else out there who needs a site like yours, a portfolio site, or a site for their small business, that Hover is a great place to get your domain for a bunch of reasons. One, they've got like 400 different suffixes. It doesn't have to be a .com. It could be anything. It could be a .horse. It could be a .pizza. Uh, but here's a really practical reason. You, you want to get your domain name from someone different than your web hosting service because you might change your web hosting service. Hover is who you want because they don't upsell you, try to trick you into buying things you don't need, or charge you for things like who is privacy, which should be free and is free with Hover. They have great support. And it's 24-7. And you will get 10% off of any of those 400-plus extensions when you go to hover.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. 10% off of a domain name from Hover. Zoe, on CanadaLand Shortcuts, we have a segment called Duly Noted. Are you familiar with this aspect of our show? I am. May I ask you to duly note something that you feel should be duly noted? What I've been fascinated with this week on Twitter is the controversy surrounding the Katie Royfe piece that's supposed to be coming out in which she na- she's apparently going to name the author of the shitty media men list that was, a, a, I guess, a Google Doc that went around during the time of Me Too talking about prominent predatory men in the journalism industry. And Katie Royfe, you know, she's, she brings to mind like Camille Paglia, like the worst of the 90s anti-rape feminists, you know. And so it was it was kind of an eye-rolly moment that I had knowing that she was going to be the author. But it's 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 disappointing to me that I think Harper's, you know, I'm a subscriber and, and I love what they do largely, but I do feel like they have a hard time connecting to what's going on in the world. They're, they have a hard time connecting intergenerationally, I guess is how yeah. I would put it. And uh, and so I feel this is disappointing. I feel like there have been a number of, you know, there are opportunities to have really interesting feature-length pieces about uh, sexual harassment and um, and but what they're really looking for the clickbaity uh, women who are the, you know the iconoclastic anti-feminists of the day which is just like repeating a lot of the same 
lines over and over. And uh, and so I'm interested to see what, what Harper's does about the backlash because there was, you know, considerable backlash mm-hmm. on There's, Twitter. Don't publish it. You don't have to publish it. Right. And I don't necessarily believe that they shouldn't publish it, but I do feel like they shouldn't publish the name of the, I feel like it's a dangerous thing. Of course they shouldn't. I mean, there's an interesting larger story that, that you're describing of like, you know, Harper's, the, you know, left screeds of Lewis Lapham and like you couldn't imagine something more left-leaning in the mainstream political discourse, mm-hmm. but now generationally completely offside with where people are at. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an interesting generational, but in a more urgent way, don't publish her name. Exactly. She She's will like be doxxed. She will be sued. She might get hurt. Yeah. Duly noted. I have something. Uh-huh. I have sad news I want to duly note. James Dolan, the co-creator of Secure Drop, took his life. I didn't know who James Dolan was until I, I learned of his death. But I wanted to note this because Secure Drop, of course, is how a lot of journalistic organizations are able to get um, leaked information securely. It's a free uh, technology that was developed by James Dolan and by Aaron Swartz. And Aaron Swartz was a young technologist and programmer who was one of the founders of RSS, through which podcasts are distributed, was one of the founders of Reddit. And was one of the founders with James Dolan of Secure Drop. And Aaron Swartz got into trouble. He made a bunch of money off Reddit. I interviewed him once. I said, why aren't you off making millions more with your skills in Silicon Valley? Why are you instead doing what you're doing, which was getting into trouble with the FBI for freeing legal documents and uh, research scholarly public documents that he was taking out of like hard to access libraries and putting them online, uh, you know, from MIT and from, you know, and the, they, they came crashing down on him. The feds were prosecuting him with everything they had. Why, like you could be making millions. Why are you doing this? Because well, I already made my money. Hmm. I want to do something good. James Dolan is, uh, was a technologist who was making a fortune as a security programmer and who left that to develop Secure Drop. And I, I noted with a lot of sadness, I don't know anything about why he took his life as Aaron Swartz did. Kind of devastating that in this environment where people are making obscene amounts of money for developing the most trivial things, mm-hmm. there are some people who are like really care about what their technology does. And the right. tools with which we do journalism, like SecureDrop and RSS, the people who built those things and gave them away for free, because it's just sad to me that the people who seem to actually have a conscience about what their work does in the world seem to have a harder road. Right. And and uh, I just want to duly note that that happened. Duly noted. Four women accuse the artistic director of Toronto's Soul Pepper Theater Company of sexual battery and harassment. They faced constant sexual harassment, groping, and unwanted touching at the hands of a serial sexual predator and bully. Uh, They talked about a a, a sense of fear that people did not feel that they could speak up. Directors of Soul Pepper Theatre Company accepted the resignation of Albert Schultz effective immediately. So the big story last week was Albert Schultz, the Me Too movement caught up with him finally. And I have to say that like a lot of people, I was aware that this was in the works for some time. Did it come as a surprise to you when his name was associated with this, when he was accused of years and years of sexual predation, sexual harassment at work? Uh, it didn't come as a shock, no, um, though I'm a little bit removed from the theater community and hadn't heard about him in particular. No, I did know that Soul Pepper was like a difficult place to work, but I wasn't aware of the specifics. Yeah, it's funny because it's got this like wonderful image as like sort of um, – you know, the baby boomer theater company, like if you're if your parents are not quite old enough for Stra- Stratford and Shaw, but not young enough for like, you know, downtown, you know, that Soul Pepper is yeah. the the sweet spot. But it like a lot like you look at the board of directors and the associations, it was absolutely enmeshed with the, you know, elite of Canada. 
So we were aware of this here for a bunch of reasons. And I have personal connections to people involved. And I'll, I'll get into all that in the weeks to come. And this was an interesting one, though, in that we're seeing the different ways in which women and survivors can come forward with accusations. And this was the first time it was the news broke with civil lawsuits being filed. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in in the discussion around the differences between civil lawsuits and criminal lawsuits, specifically to ponder what would have happened if the Gameshi trial was not criminal but rather civil and what kind of advantages there are for survivors to go that route. Things I wasn't I wasn't really aware of that before. No, and I don't think they were aware either of that as an option, and it might have been a better one. As I understand it, there's a lot of differences, one being that as opposed to having to prove that this happened beyond a reasonable doubt, mm-hmm. uh, you have to prove that it probably happened on a balance of probabilities. Right. I think another thing is that there's a discovery process whereby Gameshi would have had to have actually taken the stand or, or whatever. Uh, yeah, would've... he would have had to have like seven hours of, of questioning. That he'd yeah. be deposed, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. This is legal stuff that I, mm-hmm. I don't know so well. But I, I will say from a journalistic point of view, the one big difference is when you are reporting accusations from your sources – you assume liability for what they're saying hmm. uh, as a journalist, right. right? And and it's not enough just to say, hey, I'm reporting on somebody's allegation. You've got to go and, and do everything you possibly can do to verify. You've got to give their side a, a, you know, a chance to respond. But as soon as people have public court proceedings underway, whew, you just report on them. Right. It takes all of the burden off of the journalists. And it was interesting because I know that there was a lot of tension between um, – the people, you know, the women who, the four women who were pursuing the civil case, they, the media was asking them questions. Do we talk to the media? Will this break first? What, what about the suits? And, you know, in a different environment, if you're in a race like that, the media wants to break the story as soon as they can. But there's also a point of view from which the media says, hey, if we just wait for these lawsuits to get filed, uh, we can report this without having to have any liability whatsoever. And so I'm, I'm, I'm interested in talking to the reporters behind this about that. What I find really interesting about the Soul Pepper case is that I think it's the first time that the Me Too movement that's been happening happening in America is happening here. And I feel like the reason why uh, it didn't happen with UBC Accountable even, you know, when the one year anniversary came is because of the the balance of power. Like I think to some to some degree the Me Too movement happened the way it did because the accusers were as famous as the accused. Mm-hmm. And with you know, with Soul Pepper, they were actresses who were backed, who had the backing of their community, which I think, you know, we see with the with the letter that was publicized in the Globe this week, with uh, you know all the signatures of people who support. And Anne Marie McDonald wrote the letter, and and that there's you know they have a lot of community support, and that I don't think would have necessarily come that quickly had it not been for the Me Too movement. And also, I feel, but I feel like conversely, why it's not happening in Canlit the same way is that. The powerful voices and the famous folks at the heart of the conversation are on the side of the accused when it comes to the Galloway situation. Yeah. You know? Things have definitely changed. Mm-hmm. Though there's still some things in the coverage that raised an eyebrow for me. I want to talk about, um, in, the, in the early hours of the story breaking, an interview that happened on uh, CBC's As It Happens. Uh, the accusers had yet to hold a press conference. So we we hadn't heard uh, from them specifically. We, we, we heard their, their accusations. Um, and their lawyer... Uh, represented them in an interview with Carol Off. Oh, right. And right. Albert Schultz had not said anything at this point. He hadn't even denied it at this point. And we, we should say he later said he will defend himself vigorously. We don't know exactly how he's going to defend himself or what he's going to say. But we did hear this exchange between Carol Off and the lawyer representing the four actresses in the civil suits. 
You know that in theater deals with life issues and uh, artistic directors are known to do surprising, sometimes bizarre things to provoke the best performance out of an actor, the, 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 the accurate emotion. And uh, our directors are known to do things that would not be appropriate in a normal workplace. Would you agree with that? I think it depends on the context. I don't think exposing your penis to an actress to provoke a, you know, a, a particular reaction would be appropriate. I think that would be extremely hard to, to defend. So you you say that you believe that, or, and your clients believe that Mr. Schultz crossed the line even for the the license that a, a theater director, artistic director, would be given. Yes, um, many many lines. I have a lot of room for an interviewer's responsibility to play devil's advocate and to push back. But I don't know that it's necessarily Carol Off's job to give us a preview of Albert Schultz's defense, uh, which I'm sure will be his defense. And I'm sure that it was what he thought the whole time through these years that he's accused of rampant uh, sexual harassment at work. The Svengali uh, artistic director, I was trying to push them to their limits. They need to be emotionally available. They need to expose everything that they're thinking. I need to, it's my job to draw the emotion out of them. And uh, that blurs a line and gives a lot of leeway for all kinds of, you know, power games and mind fuckery. But Carol often knew at the beginning of the interview, she was told the allegations include him exposing himself to an actress. Like on what planet is it just some like uh, theatrical, Right. You know, uh, exercise to try to get your actor to be their best possible performer to whip it out as they're going on stage. Especially when he did a lot of those things like right before they went on stage, you know, that's an extra level of crazy. Maybe that helps his case. They they needed to see that before they went. I needed them. uh, It's bizarre to me. that She she asked twice. She says, wouldn't you agree that a theater director has to do some really strange things or some things that wouldn't work in, say, you know, a paper factory? Like, what are you talking about? I see this all the time in the coverage of sexual harassment and that this appearance, journalists trying to appear as though they are equal... Yeah, you know, the both sides cliche. So. <laughs> on the one hand, we value people's dignity. Yeah. On the other hand, sometimes a director's got to take his pants down. <laughs> you know, two it's sides. Just the down. world we live in. That's just how it goes. But uh, you know that that one interview, notwithstanding, I, I I feel like this is playing out in a largely responsible way, and and I feel like the respect that accusers are being afforded by the media is very different today than mm-hmm. it was a few years ago. Oh yeah, remarkably so. Zoe Whittall, that is your Canada Land Shortcuts. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Anybody can email me about this show at jesse at canadalandshow.com and I will read what you send me. Zoe, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter, Zoe Whittall, slash Zoe Whittall. And um, I do have a website that I barely ever update, but it's zoewhittall.com. We are also on Twitter at CanadaLand. If you like us on Facebook, you will get our news stories in your Facebook news feed. Uh, You can also just check out our website, canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This episode was produced by Abby Madon. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. 
If you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary. Not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.